Our scripture reading this morning comes from John's Gospel, chapter 7, New Testament. Let's hear the word of God. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee, purposely staying away from Judea, because the Jews there were waiting to take his life. But when the Jewish feast of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brother said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judea, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore Jesus told them, The right time for me has not yet come. For you any time is right. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feasts. I am not yet going up to this feast. Because for me, the right time has not yet come. Having said this, he stayed in Galilee. However, after his brothers had left for the feast, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the feast the Jews were watching for him and asking, Where is that man? Among the crowds there was widespread whispering about him. Some said, He is a good man. Others replied, No, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the Jews. Amen. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now this passage makes it very clear that from the start Jesus knew that he was on a collision course with the world. That the whole nature of who he was and his ministry meant that he simply could not and would not be accepted. And so in in the end that his death was inevitable. Now in turn that brings us face to face once again with what John's gospel teaches. We were... um, going through the book of John for uh, quite a considerable period before this. We've spent some time away from it. But if you were here before, you may remember that the key verse in John, for John 20, verses 30, verse 31, uh, lays out why John wrote his book. He talks of what he's written down about Jesus' teaching and particularly his miracles. And he says, but these are written down that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, John is recording evidence that when we see it, leads to belief, and that in turn leads to life. Now, when we see what Jesus claimed and said and did and taught, we come to face to face fairly bluntly, as we do in this passage, with the reality that either what he claimed is true and incredibly true, wonderfully true, life-givingly true, or it is, frankly, a heap of rubbish. Possibly not just bad, but actually dangerous. And uh, as has been said before, Jesus here is either a liar or a lunatic, or he is the Lord. In a smaller way, this passage also reminds us why so many people, even in our own families, and it turns out even in Jesus' own family, simply don't get what he's about. But if what he says is true, belief in him is worth everything.
Now, as I say, it's a long time since we've been in this Gospel of John. We've seen wonderful things so far. We've seen the water turned into wine. We've seen that discussion with Nicodemus where he talks about the need to be born again. And we've seen the the promise that he will give living water in chapter 4 and the healing at the pool in chapter 5 where he talks about how he, the Son, acts together with God the Father and promises life to everyone who comes to him. We've seen the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6 and the declaration that he is the bread of life. To come to him is to have life and satisfaction. We'll also remember that just when we finished, the end of chapter 6, most of the people following him left him. What he claimed was too big. What he said of himself was too dramatic. When he said that they were to come to him to have life, they couldn't accept it. In this new section, at the beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, over the next two chapters... People begin to wrestle for the first time. The people, the crowds, begin to wrestle seriously, debate, and who is this man? What is he really about? They're beginning to see they can't just sort of swan up and enjoy the teaching and hopefully see a few miracles. They're realizing that either he's incredible or he's awful. And in a few moments, well, shortly after this passage, we'll see that they try and arrest him for the first time. Nonetheless, he's completely in control. He's using this moment to help people understand who he is. Now, as we start the passage, we see this is the beginning of a new section. He says, you know, it says, after this, after all the events so far, Jesus went around in Galilee. He was staying away from Jerusalem, from Judea, the places, in other words, where all the action was, because the religious leaders there were waiting to kill him. The stakes are high. Now, those of you with Bibles open, will, if you flick back to 6 verse 4, we'll see that the last bit of action took place at the time of the Jewish Passover feast. That's about Easter. Very important and time. This now is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, their calendar works a little bit differently from ours. Depends on the moon rather than the sun. But basically, the last chapter happened at Easter. Now this is September or October. Jesus spent six months out of sight in Galilee. The other Gospels give a lot of attention to the way he teaches the disciples during this time, Mark 7 to 9, for instance. John just passes over it. And it comes to this, the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the greatest religious events of the year, when the, the people would come together and they'd remember the way God had rescued them from Egypt and how he'd kept and cared for them as they traveled through the desert, staying in tents. And so everyone would come out, they'd make tents or little huts in the fields or in the courtyards or on their roofs and stay for a week in these little makeshift houses, sort of national camping holiday, just to remember what it had been like when God rescued them before. It's a time of joyful thanksgiving to God. And Jesus' brothers, they're about to head up to Jerusalem to celebrate. But you know, they're a bit fed up. They're a bit fed up of the way he's been hanging around. You ought to leave here and go to Judea so your disciples may see the miracles you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. In other words, Jesus has been hanging around with his 12 disciples. And they're thinking he should be pushing on with his grand career. It's a little as if... um, He's someone who's recorded a couple of really incredible hit singles. He's played a couple of massive festivals to great acclaim. But right now he's just gone back to jamming in the garage with his mates. 
He's never bothered making anything of his early success. Why won't he go and play the big crowds in Jerusalem? You know, he's clearly out for some kind of fame as a prophet, so why doesn't he grab the opportunity? Show yourself to the world. Now, comparing Jesus to a musician would be a little belittling, but that's exactly the tone they have here. That's exactly the way they think of him. Show yourself to the world, they say. And John says that saying this is a sign that even his own brothers did not believe in him. Verse 5. Jesus' response is interesting. He says, the right time for me has not yet come. It's different for you. Any time is right. You can saunter on up, but I can't. I'm on a mission, in other words. I have precise purpose. I have things to do that have to be done in the right order and at the right time. And we already know from John's Gospel that one of his purposes is to die, and he will die, and he got to die at the Feast of Passover when all the symbolism of the lamb dying in the place of others uh, takes place. So he can't die right now at the Feast of Tabernacles. That's why he can't go up quite yet. The religious leaders are waiting to kill him, and if he goes up straight away, they will. So he says, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me. In other words, guys, you really don't get just how vicious this clash is going to be. You don't really get how much they hate me. You don't understand the consequences of me and the world coming face to face. I'm not finished my work yet. I'm ready to face them, but I'm not finished yet. Notice, though, he doesn't just say, I can't go up because the religious leadership hate me. He says, the world hates me. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. We should be very struck by that. Do you remember back in chapter 3? We've heard those wonderful words. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And then here, in this chapter, he says, the world hates me. He came on a mission of love to that world, but the world hates him. Humanity, naturally, natural, normal humanity, hates him. Not just the religious leaders, but everyone. The world he came to serve in, to serve and to love, hates him. And the leaders, of course, are one symptom of that. They hate him. Of course, when he does die, they'll be joined by the secular Roman authority, Pontius Pilate. They'll be joined by the screaming, baying crowds. The world will come together, hating him. And he has a reason for this. Why, why is he hated this way? He says, because I testify that what it does is evil. In other words, Jesus' words show us what we're really like. When he speaks, when he teaches, we come face to face with all our selfishness, with all the twisted bending of the truth, all our hostility to God. We recognize for the first time perhaps the darkness in ourselves. And most of the time, we don't enjoy that. And when that happens, the world turns against him. Accepting Jesus' love and forgiveness means coming face to face first with that judgment. So coming face to face with him saying to you, your deeds are evil, but 
I will give myself for you so you can live all the same. Some people, like the leaders, uh, come up with a plan to deal with that. They come up with a plan to kill him. But that's not the only response, of course. Because his brothers, you see, he's making it very clear his brothers are part of this world as well. The world cannot hate them because they're part of the same system. Now, it's not that they want to kill him like the religious leaders do. But if you think about their words, it's very plain. They haven't thought through anything of what he's saying. They haven't come to grips in any serious way with what he's actually trying to do. That's not an uncommon thing, I'm sure. Many of us have friends or relatives who grew up in church who even now would struggle to put the gospel into words. They aren't trying to harm him. But these are guys who know he can do miracles. They're telling him to go and do miracles somewhere else. But they're treating him with contempt. They're saying, hey, big brother, you know, don't you know how to be a proper miracle worker? Let me teach you. Now, Jesus himself, God himself, the perfect teacher, the miracle worker, had a family who didn't get what he was about. Now, I imagine there are quite a few of us in this room who can relate to that. We have family and friends who treat with what we believe about Jesus with mild contempt or ignore it or maybe agree there's something to it, but it's not that significant. Some of them, some of my relatives, hate God with a passion. And we want them to know, we want them desperately to know what it is to really know Jesus and to experience his love and the hope that he gives. And often we feel very guilty that they don't. Now, sometimes it can be our fault. Sometimes we've never told them. Sometimes we've never encouraged them. Sometimes we've never prayed for them. But sometimes we have. And it should be a reassurance to us in a strange way that even Jesus' brothers didn't believe. So when our family don't believe, we can keep praying, we can keep asking, but we needn't carry a continual burden of guilt thinking that we should have been able to bring them over. It wasn't Jesus' fault his brothers didn't believe. He hadn't let them down. They'd grown up with him. They'd seen actual miracles. They couldn't deny them. And yet they didn't believe. And again, that's a symptom of the, the hardness that is in the natu- human heart naturally, the opposition the world has to God. At the same time, of course, If you've read to the end of the Bible, you know things will not stay the same way. Now, we don't have time to trace through what happens to all of Jesus' brothers, but just one, one quote will maybe do. When Paul, the great apostle, goes up to Jerusalem after being converted, he goes up to see two of the apostles in Jerusalem, Cephas, that is Peter, and the other one, James, the Lord's brother. That's the man who'll write the book of James. That's the great leader of the early church in Jerusalem. This man who just didn't get him. One day, Jesus' power, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would turn his life around. And for us too, when we look at our relations and our friends, there is hope even for those who have been confronted by things and never seem to even notice that one day they will come to know Jesus themselves. But as we carry on with the passage, again, it brings us face to face with who Jesus is. His brothers have gone up to the feast. 
Now, he hasn't let them in on it, but he is going up. Not yet, as he said, but he is going up in secret. Um, so that the religious leaders won't have time to plot against them. And as the crowds begin to gather, people really begin to whisper. They've all been waiting to see what he would do. They've all been waiting to hear him again and see some more of those miracles. And they, they begin to ask each other, you know, what, what should we think about this guy? They can't see him, so they argue instead. Some of them think, he's, he's a good man. You know, he, he goes around healing people. He helps people. He loves the poor. Well, you know, how, how can he be other than a good man? Surely he's a good guy. And others say, no, he's deceiving the people. What good man could possibly say the kinds of things he says? You know, he says he's the bread of life and all who eat him will live forever. He says that everyone who comes to him will come through death. You know, that's not the kind of things that a good bloke says. He says he's one with the Father doing everything he does. One with God. That's not just a good bloke. Now, John is setting us up for a chapter in which people will really wrestle in a big way uh, with exactly this question, who is he? And um, sort of in, in preparation for that, uh, C.S. Lewis, the, the great writer, um, during the war used to go around speaking mostly to people from the Air Force. And he would speak about Christianity and what it really meant. And most of the people he met would have a view that roughly that Jesus was a good teacher, a, a good guy who taught good things. When he finally came up to write up his response, Mere Christianity, he wrote this. No, he didn't. He wrote that. Hmm. Sorry. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. That I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. That does not come out with any patronizing nonsense about him as being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Oh, I don't know if you've ever met anyone who thinks that they are God. I have. Um, he wasn't incredibly impressive. He was someone I felt deeply, deeply sorry for. And if Jesus is like that, we should be wishing that they'd invented antipsychotics earlier than they did, rather than worshipping him. Or... As it says, he's a liar, and he should have been got rid of. Christopher Hitchens, the, um, the uh, atheist thinker, actually agreed that this was the choice that faces us, that Jesus is either a liar or a lunatic or God. And he said he thinks he was a liar or a remarkable deceiver who managed to pretend he'd done all these wonderful miracles. But he agreed that this was the choice. The thing is, if you read through Jesus' teaching, can you 
honestly convince ourselves? Can we really believe that someone who was out just for power, just to be thought of as someone amazing, would be like this? Or is he the Lord? In 741, people will see at last, some of them, that, they're the, that he is the Christ. People in the rest of this chapter will try each of these options. In 732, they'll try and arrest him as a liar. In 720, they'll think he's demon-possessed, which not exactly the same as being mentally ill, but it's the next thing over. No good teacher can say the things he said. You know, Buddha claimed to be an ordinary man with an extraordinary insight. Muhammad to be an ordinary man who'd heard from an angel. Confucius to be an ordinary man who learned lots of things from the ancients. Jesus claimed to be God from God, and that the whole world was against him, and that only he can put it right. Now, the Scottish uh, preacher, about a hundred years before Lewis, put it this way, Christ either deceived mankind by conscious fraud, or he was himself deluded and self-deceived, or he was divine. There is no getting out of this trilemma. It is inexorable. Jesus said that the whole world was against him because he was testifying that what it did was evil. And yet he was the same Jesus who came out of love to give himself for that world because the Father so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. These are very big claims. But if they are true... And as we will see in the weeks to come that they are, he has more to offer us than any human teacher ever could. And the promise of life he offers is one of incredible power and comfort. And his teaching has a reality and a clarity that no human teaching could ever have. He claims to be our Lord standing over against a world that hates him. Will we come and stand with him? He is able to offer us more and to love us better than any human teacher ever could. So let's pray. open our eyes to see you clearly whether we never have before help us to see the reality of who you are if we're not yet at that stage help us to see the seriousness and depth of what Jesus claims and to make the effort to investigate for ourselves what the evidence really shows whether he was a liar or a lunatic or the Lord. And if we have seen who you are, Lord, bring us more and more face to face with that reality every day. Able as a result to trust you more deeply, to be more confident in your absolute power and authority, more willing to give our lives over completely into your hands, knowing that you know better than we do knowing that you who are willing to come to that world that hated you, willing to come 
and love a world that would kill you and put you to death. That we can put ourselves in the hands of love like that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.